0: I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, The Bible begins in the book of Genesis, and the next book is is Exodus, and so it's close to the beginning. And we're back in Exodus. Uh, We've been in there this year and took a little bit of a break looking at uh, loving our neighbor. And uh, two weeks ago, we shared, we invited uh, our congregation into a season of considering how does the gospel and our faith shape us personally and as a church to enter into relationship with those who are different. And one of the things we see is that that calling for the people of God to relate to the other in redemptive ways is at the heart of what the Bible is all about, beginning in Genesis and then into Exodus. And so as we connect back into Exodus and Exodus 19 in Mount Sinai, we'll continue to see God's calling and invitation. And so I want to invite you to consider Uh, ways in which that's shaping you today. Again, how is God calling and shaping you in a way to relate with those who may be different? I'm going to read our passage. It's Exodus 19. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 6. And we'll be here, and we'll also be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning as well. In Exodus 19, Beginning in verse 1, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, remember we've, we've looked at this, we've seen God deliver his people, bring liberation from slavery in Egypt, on that day came in, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, We find ourselves in the story God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, and now they are back at this same mountain, the same mountain where Moses met God in a burning bush, and now God is going to meet Moses and his people and communicate the law. And this uh, morning and the next two weeks, the next uh, three weeks in total, we're going to be looking at the law. And I can almost sense like a collective maybe groan about that. Looking at the law, I mean, you know, other churches, they, they have summer series about the movies. You know, can't we do that? You know, here at Scarlet City, the past two weeks, we've talked about issues related to race and uh, addressing some of the challenges of our city and world. And now in the law, I mean, you know, This is kind of, you know, can we do something a little lighter? And, And the reality of the situation is for the modern reader, of which we all are, engaging in the law can be both confusing and offensive. It can be confusing when we look at the Old Testament law. I mean, maybe you at one point in life, you got excited and you wanted to read the whole Bible. You're like, I can do this, here it is, it can be read, Um, and you began in Genesis, and Genesis can be confusing, but it's really interesting. You see creation, uh, you see Noah and the ark, you see Abraham and God form a people, and uh, his sons, and uh, eventually someone's brothers sell him into slavery, and he he has the best moment of appearing before them. Uh, with the opportunity to seek retribution, but he extends grace, right? Genesis is very interesting. And then you get into Exodus, and Exodus continues. I mean, there's questions we don't quite know what to always make of God being in a bush, but it, that's interesting. And then we have plagues and a parting of the sea, and it's, in, it's interesting. They make movies about Genesis and Exodus. And then, if you keep going, you come to Leviticus, And Leviticus is the graveyard of people trying to read through the Bible. You get into Leviticus, and there's all these laws and commands, and you don't know what to make of it. You don't know what to make of it. And just a quick aside, if that's you, and you find yourself wanting to read the Bible, and you get to Leviticus, and you want to quit, you can skip it. Just keep going. God won't hold it against you. If you want to come back when you finish, that's totally fine. But don't let getting into Leviticus keep you from pressing on. Just quick little side, But you get into Leviticus, and there's now these questions. This is a list of commands and laws, and there's some confusion because we read some of them, and we wonder why don't we obey some of these. You know, for example, in Leviticus, we see Bible, the Bible says not to mix fabrics on clothing. Probably all of us here are breaking that command right now. The Bible says not to trim your beard. Which at Scarlet City, I think a lot of us like that command. We're a a well-bearded church. But the Bible also says not to get tattoos in Leviticus. And at Scarlet City, we don't like that command, right? We're We're a tattooed church too. So seriously, what do you make of these different commands? And it's a common question raised by people. We see it all over culture today. Why do Christians obey some commands in the Bible and not others? there's confusion. But also, the law can be offensive. It can be offensive. God giving commands on how to live. You want to start a good discussion at your school, just bring that up at Ohio State or whatever college you're a part of. What do we think of God's commands and see where the conversation goes? It is offensive. And, and quite frankly, uh, it seems very un-American In America, we are the land of the free. We uh, want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And God telling me what to do with my money and how to make decisions doesn't really make me happy. So the law can be really offensive. And so what we want to do the next three weeks is we want to show you how the law can bring liberation. Again, it's in the story of liberation, God delivering His people from all that would enslave them. And God doesn't deliver his people and then bring them to Mount Sinai and then have a, a gotcha." Like God's people weren't, "Oh, man,? Really? OK, we knew there was a catch. God delivers us from slavery, and now here we are at the mountain, and now we're, now we get this, all these laws. No. The law was good news for God's people. And it was a part of God's work of liberation, not a distraction from it. And so the next three weeks, we want to look at that, how the law can bring liberation. And, and we begin this morning looking at the meaning of Christ fulfilling the law. How do we understand and read the Old Testament law in light of Jesus Christ? It's very interesting. And in the New Testament writes extensively about the connection between the law the Old Testament law, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this all throughout Romans and Galatians. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is about the significance of Jesus fulfilling the law. But one part in particular is very interesting. In, in the gospel of Matthew, uh, in chapters 5 through 7, you may have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. And what Matthew does in writing this gospel from a particular vantage point, he brings together a collection of Jesus's teachings into this one sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and the goal that Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to show how Jesus is the new Moses giving a new law, and that's why in the mid of, middle of it, Matthew records the saying of Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 17. He says, do not think, Jesus is speaking in here, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. What does that mean? That's where we're going to go this morning. Three ways in which Jesus fulfills. We're going to look at the law, the purpose of the law, the fulfillment in Christ, and the relevance in three ways. Purpose of the law, fulfillment in Christ, and who cares? What does that mean for us today? Related to entrance into God's people, the forming of God's people, and the central ethic of loving others. First, entrance into God's people. And looking at this again, we're looking at the purpose of the law, fulfillment of Christ, and relevance today. Uh, As we consider, what does it mean to enter into the people of God? The law teaches us this. The law requires faith in God's deliverance. The law requires faith in God's deliverance. Here's a question, key question shaping this. How can we become a treasured possession? It's one of the things that God reveals to Moses, that you shall be my treasured possession. All of us, every single person here, wants to be treasured. The law shows us how, how we can find intimacy, how we can be treasured. In the text, beginning in verse 3, It says in Exodus 19, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him and out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I love this. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God reminds over and over again in giving the law. He always goes back to his deliverance in Egypt. Now, what did the Israelites do? For their deliverance. Did they fight their way out? No. Did they even run their way out? Were they just real quick, quicker than the Egyptians, and they ran? No. It says they were, they were carried out. They were literally carried out. They didn't even walk. They didn't even run. They didn't fight their way out. They were carried out by God. That's the metaphor that God is using. And think about this. As God's establishing a community here, what is their Independence Day about? Is it their strength and their might in rebelling against the evil Egyptian empire? No. Their Independence Day is a celebration of God's deliverance. It is about faith, faith in God, and that concept continues through the law. The centrality of faith is critical in understanding the law. Uh, One component of the Old Testament law is the ceremonial law, and this was how to worship God and how to be covered, how to have our sins forgiven. And there were a number of sacrifices that were implemented, and and through it all, when when the priest would come and offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people, it was about faith, it was about trusting in God's deliverance and in God covering. And that continues with Jesus. Jesus likewise requires faith, in his deliverance. Jesus fulfills this component of the law. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus fulfilling the ceremonial sacrificial system of the Hebrew law. No longer do we we obey those laws in the Old Testament because Christ has fulfilled them, but but the concept of faith continues. Now, you might be thinking this morning, you know, thanks pastor guy, but I really don't need a covering. I'm just fine. I don't need to be a treasured possession. I don't need to find that in God or anything. I'm just good. I'm independent. I do this on my own. And I really don't need this idea of being atoned or covered. In fact, I find it quite offensive. I really resonated with your point earlier about the law being offensive, and you're not helping your case. I want to press you. Why do we do a lot of what we do? Why are we so committed to work? Why do we work ourselves to death sometimes? Why do we get stressed over our parents' approval? Many of us would love more than anything, we would love our mom and dad to say, you know what, good job. Why do we stress over the approval of our parents? Why do we stress over the approval in the workplace? Why do we dress the way we do? Why do we care what other people think? Why do we try to fit in? And then why, when we're to numb the disappointments, do we commit our lives to playing video games and momentary pleasures? Why? Because all of us are on this search to be approved. All of us want to be a treasured possession. We need someone in our life to come in and say, you are loved and accepted and wanted. It's at the core of what it means to be human. And so you may say, I don't care, but your behavior probably tells a different story. All of us long to be covered. All of us long to be wanted. All of us long to be accepted in. We think if we could get in our job, so we overwork if we can have the right car and clothing and home and impress people. We're all pursuing this. And one of the things the law communicates what Jesus shows and fulfills is this invitation to trust in His work and record and not our own. In the Sermon on the Mount, it begins, it's so amazing. (laughs) The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus communicating how we enter his kingdom, the posture of a person who is a part of his kingdom. It's in the Beatitudes. You may have heard these before. They'll be on the screen. Listen to what Jesus says about how to enter his kingdom and and what it means to be in his kingdom. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus showing us, showing us at the heart of entering his kingdom and experiencing his love is coming poor, grieving, and meek. What are you pursuing in hopes that you will be a treasured possession? Are you looking to your career? Are you trusting? Are you placing your faith in your strength? Or are you trusting in Jesus? The law and Christ show that it is a life of faith, trusting in God's provision, God's deliverance. The law and Jesus require faith. We also see the law and Jesus establish a kingdom. Again, looking at the purpose of the law, the law establishes the Israelite kingdom, a light to the nations. In verse 6, it says, you shall be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. One of the things God is doing here on Mount Sinai is he's forming his people, shaping a new community, and they are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, at that time, there were a number of kingdoms. And in the ancient Near East, there uh, typically rose a kingdom of prominence and power that dominated the region. At the time of Moses, it was Egypt. They were the dominant power. And then we see the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, and eventually the Roman Empire, each of which was a kingdom that used their power to control others. God says to his people, you are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, when you think of power and domination, a priest doesn't really come to mind, (laughs) The role of a priest was to bring people to God, and that's what God is saying. He's saying, you, my people, are to be a collective witness to bring the nations to me. And this was from the very beginning when God called Abraham and formed the Israelite people. He says, you are to be a blessing to the nations, not to be blessed by the nations. You are to be a blessing to the nations, a kingdom, a collective witness Of God's grace and goodness. Jesus fulfills this. Christ fulfills the law. Christ establishes the kingdom of God. That's why Peter puts it this way, speaking to the church and speaking to Gentiles who previously were not a part, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you see him commenting here on Exodus? A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and a marvelous light. Jesus is establishing a new new community, a new kingdom, and this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus is articulating what it means to be a part of his kingdom. He puts it this way in Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16. He uses two metaphors to describe his people. One is to be a light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, many of us misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. We think when Jesus says you are to be a light and people will see your good works and give glory, we think that means each of us personally, as if we're all personal lights. But Jesus says you are a city, A city on a hill. No individual is a city. (laughs) A city is a community. What he's saying here is this, that by the way we relate to each other, we will reveal something about God. And that is always the case. The way any city or nation or kingdom relates, speaks to a collective witness of what it's about. Columbus is a collective witness about what it values. America is a collective witness about what it values. People look at the behaviors of people in any community and they form opinions about the community. Now, our goal here is not to talk about the collective witness of America or Columbus. There are some good and not good things a part of any community. Our concern is the church. What is our collective witness. When people see the way we relate, when people see the way we live, when people see the way we talk to each other, when people see what we do, our actions and behavior, what is our collective witness revealing about God? Are we a light that illuminates the character of God? Or do we show something else? The law and Christ form a community, a collective witness to the world. And then lastly, we see what should be the organizing principle of this community. Again, looking at the law and how Christ fulfills it. Now we look at the central ethic. The law emphasizes the central ethic of love. In Hebrews 6, it says, you are a holy nation. Holy means different. God is wanting to establish a people that is utterly unique from every other people on the face of the earth. In the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia, we have the record of the first cities ever built. And in every case, they were all formed around a mountain. Whether it was a hill or whether it was a ziggurat, which is a man-made mountain, and on the top of the mountain would be a temple. And people would go into the temple, and the goal, the organizing principle of the cities was, how do I bend the God's will to my will? What sacrifice can I offer? What can I do in order to to get the gods to do my bidding, my desire, my will? And this is at the heart of the city of man, of every community, Columbus, America, every kingdom, every city of man, every community. is At the heart of it is the organizing principle, how do I get the God's And how do I get others to do my will? And so we use sex, money, power to get our ways. This is at the heart, the organizing principle of the city of man. How can my will be done? God is establishing a new community with a new organizing principle. Rather than getting God to bend to our will, we go and we are called to bend to his God meets us in the temple and transforms us so that we can reflect the calling that he wants to bring into the world. I mean, think about the law, and we'll speak to this a little bit in the coming weeks, but the law redefines how we view sex, money, and power. The law that God gives is the first record of adultery being wrong for men and women. Adultery was prohibited for women in other communities and other cultures, but allowed for men. Huh. I wonder who came up with that idea. Probably men. But God wants to bring gender equality. It's not just men and people in power getting their will, but there's equality that the law is going to bring. Money. God commands his people to give 10% of their income to the poor. Now, that is a complete reversal of the city of man. The city of man uses money and power to leverage influence for one's own gain. In the city of God, we are to leverage what God gives us in order to be a blessing to those in need. God's people are called to give 10% of the poor. Think of power. How are God's people to relate to immigrants and refugees and sojourners? God's law says when they are among you, you are to give them the same rights and privileges that you have. God's law forms a people with the organizing principle of loving others. That's why as we've looked at the past several weeks, how is the law summarized? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is anyone in need. Jesus fulfills this. He fulfills the law. He emphasizes and reprioritizes for the community he was a part of the central ethic of love. It's saturated in his teachings about the kingdom. It is saturated in the whole New Testament. The priority of if we want to understand the heart of God, the law, it requires love. And Jesus gives this metaphor. We talked about sight, but he also, or we talked about light. He also gives the metaphor of being salt in verse 13. You are salt of the earth. And then he wants to explain to us something about salt. But he says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is Jesus talking about? He says, you are salt of the earth. There are two components of this as we wrap up our time. Salt, first of all, was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators in Jesus' time. I know. I don't know how they did it they survived. And partly because they had salt to preserve their food. They didn't have to eat it all at once, which I sometimes am tempted to do. But salt preserved their food. God's people are meant to be a preserving agent. They are meant to live and relate in the world in such a way that it preserves what is good. But also, salt is good to taste. And anyone who has french fries knows this. A fry is just a vehicle for salt. You don't have fries, it's useless. Or you don't have salt on your fry, it's useless. Salt is good to taste. God's people are meant to be a pleasing, a blessing, sweetness in a community. We preserve and we, and we enable prosperity. But here's the key. Salt has to be different. Otherwise, it's, as uh, Jesus said, no use. What's the use of Salt. if it's it's no different than the food that it's put on. We must be different. God forms his people. He says you are to be a holy nation. Holy means different. So the question I want to put before you as we close, what is different about your life that preserves and prospers the community that you're a part of? What is different about your life? Here's the reality. A lot of us want to find salt, and we struggle to be salt. We're looking for salt. We want something that tastes good in life. We want some goodness. And we look to the city that we live in. We look to work, relationships, money, and we want to collect as much salt as we can. God flips the script. He says, don't live your life trying to find salt, just find things that taste good for you personally. Live your life to be salt. Enter into all those communities, enter into relationships and consider how can I not leverage them for me, but how can I leverage what I have for them? The problem with Christianity, if I could just close, and again, considering the season we're in of how is God wanting to Call us to press into the hard areas of life of crossing cultural boundaries. If we live our life just wanting safety and security, just wanting to use relationships, use work, use money, use the places in which we live to be salt in our life to benefit us, we completely miss the heart of who God is calling us to be. God calls us to be salt. This is the core of the law. The law establishes a new community. The law shows us what this community is to be about. Is that being reflected in our church? Let's pray. Lord, grant us the courage to be a community that reflects your character. Help us to be salt, to relate with each other in such a way that doesn't use others, that doesn't manipulate one another, but that we genuinely love. We live in a world that is decaying, and the operating principle of the world is to use others for our gain. The operating principle of the world is consumerism. Lord, grant us the courage to be different, uh, that we would be people defined by patience, faith, giving up power to serve those in need and love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.